0: This podcast is brought to you by Search Tempo. If you want your business to get found on Google, visit SearchTempo.com. That's S E A R C H T E M P O.com. Unlike many SEO agencies, Search Tempo uses Australian university trained English speaking experts to help you generate more business through Google. Search Tempo has helped businesses like yours since 2007. Packages start from just $295 a month. Visit SearchTempo.com. That's searchtempo.com and see your business at the top of the Google search engine. Inside Out with Nick Holt. I love you. Well, since November 8, 2016, the day that Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton to become the 45th President of the United States, major US news outlets in lockstep with Twitter and Facebook have disseminated a distorted narrative of a man who one could be mistaken for believing is evil incarnate. So great has the mainstream media's hatred of Donald Trump been, They were willing to burn down all credibility they once had in order to ensure that the President would not be able to see out his first term. It began in 2017 with allegations by the Democrat Party that President Trump and his campaign team had colluded with Cold War foe Russia to win the 2016 election. These accusations led to the famous Mueller report, officially titled the Report on the Investigation into Russian Interference, in the 2016 presidential election. It was an exhaustive two-year investigation into the personal life of Donald Trump, members of his administration and even his children. And then on January 10, 2017, BuzzFeed News published an unverified document known as the Steele Dossier, which was prepared by former British spy Christopher Steele that contained alleged allegations and evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. But it also contained salacious, unfounded reports that in 2013, the President of the United States watched Russian prostitutes urinate in a Moscow hotel room. As it turned out, the steel dossier was determined to be spurious and false. Inspector General Michael Horowitz drove the final stake through the heart of the fallacious document when he reported that the dossier was compiled by hearsay and third-hand gossip from two low-level sources. So who was behind this document and why was the mainstream media so eager to report its veracity? Breaking news, CNN learning tonight that Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee helped fund the research which led to the
1: controversial and, frankly, uh, salacious and disgusting in some of its allegations dossier that detailed alleged Russian efforts to help Donald Trump's presidential campaign. The Washington Post was first to report this.
0: Well, the House Intelligence Committee cleared Donald Trump of any wrongdoing involving possible collusion with Russia. There was no apology and no retraction. And to this day, the Steele dossier is the only publicly available document that details alleged collusion with Russia. But this hasn't stopped the mainstream media from continuing to push the Trump-Russia narrative. On October 14, 2020, the most damaging piece of evidence involving malfeasance hit the front page of the New York Post, the fourth most circulated newspaper in the United States. But this time it didn't involve Donald Trump. It involved the very people who told us for three years that the President of the United States was a compromised foreign agent. But it wasn't just a story that implicated a member of the Democratic Party. It involved the man who is seeking to be the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden.
1: Vice President Biden, there have been questions about the work your son has done in China and for a Ukrainian energy company when you were vice president. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical?
0: Nothing was unethical. Here's what the deal. Did the mainstream media inform the public of these allegations? No, they buried the story. And then Twitter and Facebook censored it, banning users from sharing a link to the New York Post's front page story. On October 17, Adam Schiff started appearing on mainstream media again. And here's what he said about the story. Well, we know that this whole uh, smear on Joe Biden uh, comes from the Kremlin. Uh, But clearly, the origins of this whole... Uh, smear uh, are from the Kremlin. Yes. uh, Well, look, uh, you know, I think we know who the driving force behind this smear has been all along, and it's been uh, the president and the Kremlin. Uh, The Kremlin has an obvious interest uh, in denigrating Joe Biden. They want Donald Trump to win. They recognize he's a weak president. Uh, He's been the gift that doesn't stop giving for the Kremlin. This, This particular smear, though, uh, has also been acknowledged to come from the Kremlin. Utter unwillingness to stand up to the Kremlin, promoting Kremlin propaganda. I wish I could uh, tell you more, Wolf. I wish the intelligence community was at liberty to tell the public more. But It turns out the intelligence community was at liberty to tell the American people more. Here's the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe. Some of the people that complain the most about uh, intelligence being politicized are the ones politicizing intelligence and unfortunately in this case uh, it is adam Schiff, the chairman of the house intelligence uh, committee who uh, as you pointed out on friday said that the intelligence community believes that hunter biden's laptop and the emails on it are, are part of some russian disinformation campaign let me be clear The intelligence community doesn't believe that uh, because there's no intelligence that supports that. And we have shared no intelligence with Chairman Schiff or any other member of Congress that Hunter Biden's laptop is part of some Russian disinformation campaign. It's simply not true. So now we stand at the precipice of what many are calling the most important election in US history. And yet the mainstream media, Twitter and Facebook, are depriving the American people of a story that alleges corruption at the highest levels of the Democratic Party. And what's worse, a recent poll found that 51% of Americans believe it's Russian disinformation. So just how did we arrive at this Orwellian reality? Is this shameless and staggeringly unethical behaviour by the mainstream media a new phenomenon? Or did the election of President Donald Trump expose the deep-seated biases that now dominate the left-wing media. Here to talk to me about this is Jonathan Anomaly. Jonathan is a professor in the Philosophy, Politics and Economics program at the University of Pennsylvania, and he joins me now. Thanks for being on the program, Jonathan. I know that you are an independent thinker, and it was very difficult to get someone to have a conversation about this sort of stuff with me, so I thank you for doing that. But it seems that people right now have a very difficult time with centrist thought.
1: Yeah, yeah. people are deeply tribal. I mean, among the many topics I'm interested in are evolutionary psychology and the, the, the parts of our minds that are adapted to be religious. We're born to be religious. And I, I think a lot of atheists like me, <laughs> you know, they end up finding religion in the form of politics in these other areas. <laughs> and so they really want to divide the world into exactly three camps or, you know, what? Whatever, whatever the number is, you know, and and if you don't fit in there, I mean, I have very right wing views and very left wing views, you know, and it's just like, I guess I'm none of the above, but that they can't process that. And I think that's that's more of a statement about the way our minds work than it is about the consistency of argument.
0: Have you read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt?
1: Yeah, it's a good book. I had him. You'll love The Left actually gave to my class at Duke it's on YouTube it's got like a million hits actually pretty cool okay. uh, it, it's uh, it's right up your alley it we recorded it four years ago, and it was the t- topic was should universities be pursuing truth or social justice and what Height said is basically you got to pick one because otherwise what you get is a lot of motivated reasoning and he recorded that it was right before the election of 2016, just weeks before so it was like four years ago today almost
0: it seems to me that Strong biases were unearthed in a lot of people when Trump became president.
1: Yeah, people who attribute too much to that election, I think, don't understand that Trump is as much a symptom as he is a cause. I mean, he's reflecting and then bringing out a lot, you know, within both the opposition, these journalists, you know, who we knew they were kind of activists and left wing, but they didn't really come out of the closet until 2016. And then it was like, wow, okay, now we know who you are. Exactly. (laughs) And and the same thing, you know, uh, on on all sides, of course.
0: I think more so on the left of the political spectrum, I've found it almost impossible to have long-form conversations with journalists. In some cases, these are journalists who have been doing this for decades. But it's been a real challenge to find people to have robust discussions about the Trump administration's policies with they're really only interested in talking about his personality.
1: Yeah, like nobody knows, for example, one of his first acts was to ban lobbying, ban working for a lobbying organization uh, for at least five years after you've left your government job. Like unequivocally a fantastic idea. Nobody covered it. And it's like this <laughs> This helps everyone you know, <laughs> to ban yeah. lobbying the government. After, But, you know, just things like that if you ask people about it they'll say like no way he didn't do that or I've never heard why didn't I hear about that you think well yeah good question
0: I often say to my parents uh, you know in a jovial sort of way that if you're obtaining your news from one of the five major TV stations or two major newspapers then you've really been fed this omnipotent narrative for four years that Trump is an irredeemably bad person and it's not so much what they choose to report but more so what they choose not to report reshaping the federal judiciary tax cuts the jobs act the first step act which passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in congress they're not reporting these things
1: yeah and i guess we'll get into this but all the psychological tricks like we know the anchoring effect for example people have an intuitive idea of that even if they've never read psychology that if you plant the seeds of an idea, Russian collusion, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what happens two years later. There can be exonerating evidence. First of all, the media is not going to play the evidence, right? But then secondly, even if they do come out a couple times, it's been planted. So my parents are the exact same way. So is my brother, same as your parents, and they have more faith than ever in the mainstream media until you see cracks in the matrix and, and are willing to acknowledge it. They're, uh, what, what, do, what do we tell people? We sound like cranks.
0: And people are hanging on to this trust in desperation because what happens if one day you're smacked in the face with the realisation that these media institutions that we've trusted for a 100 years are crooked as hell?
1: Yeah. Some of them intentionally, some unintentionally, but they are. Yeah, that's right.
0: So in your opinion, how did we get to the stage where major news networks, along with the two biggest social media platforms in the world, could bury a story like this New York Post one and call it Russian disinformation without any evidence to suggest that that's true, uh, get away with it, and have people believe the narrative?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that part of it is, of course, the fact that some of the mainstream media used to be credible, and they are riding the, the coattails of their own credibility writing it off a cliff, I think, but, you know, five to ten years ago they had their biases, we all have our biases, and they're they're even recognized to some extent, but what happens in 2016 is, of course, a number of these media organizations and big tech firms start to panic, and they realize, to some extent, they either enabled or or allowed Trump to be elected, and whatever they believed, sincere or not, they they claim to believe that he was evil incarnate, and they, they seem to have felt some complicity for his election. And they thought, you know, you know what, we're going to push a number of narratives to discredit this president. And I think that they could push that to the extent that they were afforded some credibility from the past, from 5, 10, 20, 100 years ago. And so some people now, increasing the number of people don't trust the media, but a fair number still do.
0: What do you think was the first step the mainstream media took in? creating this false narrative about who Donald Trump is?
1: Well, I suppose the first big story was uh, about supposed Russian collusion. And as we now know, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not a historian or a political scientist. But as a casual observer who's, who's really paid attention, we, we knew from the beginning that there was no evidence for it. Uh, we did, I suppose, trust that there might be some evidence. Of course, any president of any country might collude with another president and and maybe in a corrupt way. So I think, you know, people remained open to that. The media started pushing it. We now know it was based on a so-called dossier, uh, a set of papers that was cooked up by a number of people allied with Hillary Clinton. They had cooked it up before the election. They used it to justify spying on the Trump, not the Trump administration, but the Trump campaign at the time. It was was authorized at the highest levels under the Obama administration, and once they had that authorization, and they had leaks that come from the White House, from the FBI, and so on, once you had those leaks from partisans who agreed that Trump was somebody that should not be in office, then it was really easy for the media to collude, implicitly at least, with the FBI, with members of the former Obama administration, et cetera. So they could leak out saying, look, we can't tell you what the evidence is. But what we can tell you is there's good reason to believe there's Russian collusion. Uh, uh, that is, in other words, Putin wanted Trump to be elected, and that's how it
0: happened. And this fueled the idea that Trump was unequivocally bad?
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I, I, look, I think that part of the opposition to Trump, I mean, almost all of it, was that he crushed certain pieties in the media. So the Russian collusion hoax, as we now know, is utterly unfounded. That was, I think, just a way for them to discredit the president and potentially get him impeached. And it worked. Eventually, he was impeached by Congress once the Dems took over. But actually, I think backing up a bit to the campaign of 2015, what really happened is Trump threatened certain ideas held dear by many members of the mainstream media. What are the three things that got him elected? Well, one was opposition to global trade. And as we're all taught in in, in university, globalization is good; the more, the better. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he advocated very clearly that we need to slow down immigration. We have at least a million legal immigrants per year in the in the United States, and probably over a million illegal immigrants every year. Trump said, "Hey, we need to slow this down. We need to. Uh, we also need to stem the tide of the number of migrants because that's going to deflate wages." Thirdly, if you recall, in the summer of 2016, there were two Islamic terrorist attacks in the United States. When those occurred, Obama stood up and he said, look, you you all need to understand this has literally nothing to do with Islam. He wouldn't even call it Muslim terrorism. He called it radical extremism. He'd never mentioned the word Islam. Well, what did Trump do? He said, well, I'm going to stop Islamic immigration. (laughs) He said the Mm -hmm. wall just got 10 feet higher. You know, He would come out with these pretty outrageous statements. I couldn't even believe he was saying them, but you know, partly symbolic, partly real. And you can imagine pe- people just absolutely spinning around in circles thinking, what? He can't say this. He can't do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the media class, universities, I'm a university professor. These ideas are totally antithetical to their worldview, right? They support open borders. They think all religions are exactly the same. And if Muslims strike us, it must be because we provoked it. And similarly, uh, uh, if some immigration is good, some global trade is good, well, more must be better. And Trump stood against all of those. So he really, I really think it was ideological opposition. And then and the Trump thing was just a way of them to try to get, take him down.
0: Do you think Trump was gifting the media a bit by making these decisions?
1: Oh, I suppose so. I mean, I don't know the the narrative that crafted though was collusion with with the foreign government and the historical adversary, right? We still have images of the Cold War, I suppose, in the minds of especially older Americans. So, you know, I actually think the Russian collusion story, which again turned out to be utterly false, just cooked up, that really wasn't related to any of the issues Trump was campaigning on, right? Uh, Issues having to do, again, with trade, with immigration, with Islam, things like this. I think it was just a convenient way to try to strike back at him. And it worked. It worked pretty well.
0: It did work, but he seemed to push through it, didn't he?
1: Sort of. Um, I wouldn't fully say that. I mean, because remember that two years in, um, when he was just starting to get his bearings as an outsider in Washington, uh, every single night, the mainstream media, which leans left, was pushing the Russian collusion story. And that caused, uh, I would say, was a primary cause of the House of Representatives shift from Republican to Democrat. So remember, in 2018, that happened. Mm. And it wasn't until long after that, that we really got the full evidence that not only did this not happen, Russian collusion, but in fact, it was a, a conspiracy and probably a criminal conspiracy. As you may know, there are actually likely to be serious indictments coming down over the next year or two, especially if Trump stays in office. That is indictments of uh, Democratic senators and other operatives who claimed, knowing that there was no conspiracy, claimed that there was. Adam Schiff in particular. He's on record after having been through, seen all of the documents, been through the hearings. He's on record having said he has evidence that that there was collusion. So it's, it's interesting, but at least in America, um, it is illegal to disclose confidential documents if you're a politician, if, if you have access to them. So in this case, confidential intelligence, you're not allowed to disclose that. But it's not necessarily a crime to lie about it because you're not disclosing anything, actually.
0: And they've continued this lie right up until now, whether it's been through obfuscation by Adam Schiff or mainstream media talking heads sowing reckless doubt on the evening news?
1: Yeah, I suppose they did. Um, certainly, it's lasting through the Hunter Biden email scandal. And I suppose a couple of things could could help explain it. And this is just armchair psychology, but one is the the anchoring effect. And we're well aware that when you plant the seeds of an idea in people's minds and you repeat it many times, um, and then you have a single instance of discrediting evidence or you have some counter-evidence first of all it's it's likely that a lot of people who believe in this collusion conspiracy they won't see the counter evidence because they won't pay attention to it certainly the mainstream media is not emphasizing they're not getting up and saying well we were wrong it turns out so a lot won't be exposed to the exonerating evidence but secondly it takes a lot of counter evidence to dislodge that initial seed in your mind that there was collusion between the Trump administration and Russia and so so i think that the anchoring effect uh, Psychologically helps explain why people still believe it In fact, a majority of Americans were polled just just a couple days ago And they were asked, do you believe that the Hunter Biden emails found on the laptop Were a part of Russian disinformation 51% of those polled said yes Even though the Federal Bureau of Investigation And everybody else who has any, any ability to determine this said absolutely not There's zero evidence that Russia has anything to do with this So you can see it's planted in people's minds, it works, and people believe it. And I suppose the Democrats, in order to be consistent with their story and not backtrack and say we were wrong, let alone we lied, we actually lied intentionally, they have to just keep spinning the story.
0: Yeah, and obviously that story filters through the major networks, all except maybe one or two, Fox and maybe or really just Fox in terms of the big ones, but all the others are pushing this, and that information is then being filtered through all the social media platforms, especially Twitter and Facebook. So presumably that anchoring is the result of the propaganda that's being pushed through these outlets.
1: That's right. And as you probably know, Twitter banned the story from the New York Post Uh, One of the oldest uh, newspapers in the United States, they banned the story uh, about the Biden emails that were found on a laptop that Hunter Biden had dropped off at a local computer repair shop.
0: In terms of journalistic ethics, respect for truth and the public's right to information, why should, and I'll play the devil's advocate here, why should that story have been reported?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I suppose media, especially in a free society, has a choice on what to report and not re- report. So, to some extent, I mean, I don't, I don't think they should, there should be no compulsion to report it. Uh, the hypocrisy is pretty amazing because they reported, for example, uh, Trump's tax records, even though those were illegally obtained. And so, what Twitter said as well, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, give any air to this. Biden email story, because we don't know if these emails are legitimate. We don't know if they're legitimately obtained. Well, they didn't have that, that stance when it came to Russian collusion, supposedly with Trump or with uh, any of these other kinds of cases that Trump tax records. So clearly they're applying different standards here. And in particular, when you have politicians potentially being bribed or paid off by foreign governments for access to the White House, that seems a ob- Objectively, like a story. Right? Now, maybe that is run-of-the-mill corruption. Who knows? But, but that is the kind of corruption precisely that journalists normally cover. And the idea that they won't, won't ask a single question of Joe Biden other than what his favorite kind of ice cream is, <laughs> that's, that's fairly outrageous. And I think people who are, are skeptical of the media understand exactly what's going on.
0: Yeah, but for people who aren't sceptical of the media, unless it's right-wing or conservative media, they're treating this story with the same derision as the mainstream media is. Because all the bias and hatred that they've had against President Trump is now being tested by one news story that's suggesting that it's actually the opposition that's crooked.
1: That's right. And I mean, a good analogy is to the story promoted in the mainstream media in the United States which generated this movement called Black Lives Matter. And I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but anyone who's looked at the publicly available crime statistics, the data on police shootings, criminality, and so on. And the US government is one of the few that actually makes all of that data public. It's easy to find actually. Anyone who has taken a look at that knows that it's just extraordinarily rare for police to shoot unarmed people, and let alone unarmed black people, and in fact, if anything, they shoot them less often than you would expect, given background criminality rates. So for example, last year, according to the FBI, nine unarmed black men were shot by the police and 23 unarmed white men were, most of which on both sides were resisting arrest, right? Either with a knife or they were wrestling the cops. And you know, maybe a few of those were unjust. Now, if you present those data to people, and in fact, there, there's a YouTuber who goes around and actually does that at a Black Lives Matter protest and they don't welcome that and say, well thank you for showing us this data, it's actually quite interesting. I guess I was wrong. What's their reaction? It's absolute insanity. I mean they tell them to buzz off, they say this can't be true, where do you get your data? He said, well it's the FBI, this is not true. Uh, you know, they they won't even look at, you know, if you show them the data on a piece of paper, they won't look at the paper. And this is similar, I mean what's going on here is deeply ideological. People are members of tribes. They want to believe the opposing tribes, and, and media is actually fueling this now. The opposing tribes are driven by motives that are, are evil, that are malicious, and that they're either mistaken, malicious, or both on the other side. This is what's driving this and what's dri- driving the media to present these anchors and then to get these people to either consistently vote in a certain direction, or tune into their network and sort of direct their two minutes of hate at the opposing networks.
0: Is this global propaganda like we've never seen?
1: It sure is, and I think the big story is a story that I've been on about for a few years now. It starts in the universities, especially American universities. I'm aware that we export our worst ideas to the UK and Australia and so on as well, but they really start here, or they did start here, certainly a few decades ago, and they've really picked up steam. And the reason I mention universities is that the people who run these big tech companies, amazingly enough, you know, the people who start them, are often in their early 20s, and mm. people in really high positions of management, and the woman at Google, for example, who controls the so-called fairness algorithm, these are very young, extremely left-wing people who came out of the Ivy League, indoctrinated with a set of ideas. Who have never encountered a legitimate argument on the other side of the way they think. So, for example, when James Demore, the famous Google programmer in 2017, was put through a diversity training program and then asked his opinion of the program, just internal information, what do you think of the program? He said, "Well, it's fine. I support modest efforts at diversity, but I don't think we'll get to exactly 50/50 men and women, at least in programming. Here's why. And he cited a number of psychological studies about different preferences between men and women and so on, you know, and and what happened? He was fired. It was considered totally outrageous that he would say these things. And it turns out he has high-functioning Asperger's or autism. He's just a guy who has a hard time lying. He's just a programmer and he said, here are my observations. Here's the science I'm citing. And the people who run Google were absolutely outraged that somebody could say with a serious face and justifying evidence, men and women are different? That's <laughs> that's sick. You must have some kind of mental disorder. You know, um, that was their reaction. And you can go back and just look at the James Damore case. So this is who's running our tech companies. And they, I think, sincerely believe the things they say they do. Um, I can tell you one thing. I'm in contact with a number of my former students from Duke University who work at these companies. We often chat on encrypted chat groups like Signal, and they seek advice. What do I do? Do I quit? Do I stage a protest? Because they often disagree with these censorship policies or with these, these radical policies that these young Ivy League educated people have.
0: Have any of them attempted to do that?
1: Yes, a number of them. Well, one, I obviously won't say names or mention gender or anything, but one of them Uh, leaked some information about blacklists that Google was keeping for certain employees. Uh, These were either conservatives, uh, libertarians, basically non-conformists on issues involving race or gender or the usual things, um, any of these politically sensitive issues, Islam, whatever it is. And what they would do is they'd create these blacklists, and they said, we either need to get rid of these people or we need to find another office for them to work in. And he released some of that data to the press, and that went to Project Veritas. Mm -hmm. Um, And Project Veritas, as you may know, has exposed um, um, Google's plot. They they said it very clearly on camera, we want to prevent another Trump situation. It couldn't have been clearer what they said their stated goals are in adjusting their algorithms.
0: What do you think needs to happen for The good people at the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these other major media outlets to start saying, you know what, we're going to start reporting the truth here.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty worried about this because, as you probably know, there is an appetite for non-truth or truthiness. Um, You know, this is nobody wants to be lied to all the time. Um, That wouldn't work very well. It wouldn't make them feel good about themselves. But you might say they want an optimal amount of lying, and we all do this. We want to believe we're smarter or better looking than we really are, right? This is why people have filters for Instagram or why they, I don't know, they take one of these bullshit online IQ tests that says you're 150 IQ or whatever. You know, we all do this and this is a problem. And we used to think, look, I mean, part of the purpose of a free society is when there's freedom of the press, freedom to read and express your views. Well, these biases will tend to cancel each other out. And in fact, in the early days of social media, A lot of my friends really celebrated Twitter. They thought, this is great. You know, you get in arguments, sure, but that's actually a good thing. Because when when you're bullshitting, somebody's going to call you out, and you're going to go, ah, you know, I guess they were right. You know, I'm going to change my views. The opposite seems to have happened with the press, with social media, and so on. And we all know this, you know, the so-called Twitter bubbles that you get into and that sort of thing. But little did we know that not only would we create our own information ecosystems, But that the biggest, richest companies in the history of the world, which control the information flows, would by design try to siphon us off into particular bubbles. Not just the ones we want to be in, but subtly manipulate us into being in other ones. Let me just give you an example really quickly. Um, You may have noticed right after 2016, and especially in the past year or two, YouTube, which is owned by Google, often what will happen is if you search for a particular dissident, channel somebody who disagrees with the mainstream media what google now does via its youtube you know team is if they don't like the person the first five ten and even 20 hits will be somebody refuting that person right and so so you have to sort of sort through wait a minute what is that what i wanted whereas if they agree with the person uh, um you know they won't have the refutations first certainly and they might even artificially promote it in the search. They call that promoting authoritative sources. What's authoritative? Well, well, it's what agrees with their political standpoint. So this turned out to be quite different than we thought it would even 10 years ago. And maybe it shouldn't be surprising for a deeply tribalistic creature like ourselves to not only want to siphon ourselves off into our tribes, but to have a kind of super tribe, a meta tribe, which themselves is not neutral between the different
0: tribes. Who do these young ideologues answer to? And why are they pushing an agenda that is so favourable to the Democrat Party?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think, actually, it's both less sinister and more sinister than it sounds. It's less sinister in the sense that this is a kind of emergent order. And, you know, I teach ethics and economics, and the, the kind of fundamental economic way of looking at the world is to say, look, nobody creates inflation, or if somebody does, we all do, right? It's just us adjusting our behavior. Millions of independent choices produce more or less unemployment. Uh, They produce rises and falls in prices and so on, or pollution or less pollution, right? It's not you. It's not me. It's us. And so there's no one controlling it. And the same thing goes with ideologies or social norms, right? They sort of emerge from millions of people interacting. And so there is no conspiracy here. I mean, I suppose there are, I mean, people do conspire, people intentionally do things, but it's not like, I don't know, There's some global hegemon that's trying to manipulate us, and it's one guy or one small team. It's an emergent order. Now, on the one hand, that sounds great, because it's like, good, no one's in charge, well, we can just change it. On the other hand, it's it's much worse than that, and it's in many ways worse than North Korea. In North Korea, at least there's a chance they can topple the government and then implement something else. The problem here is that these ideas are so entrenched in universities, and professors often have... Have tenure, and they choose who the next generation of graduate students are. They choose who wins the Pulitzer Prizes. As you may know, the New York Times 1619 Project, which rewrote and falsified history, just blatantly falsified it, they won a Pulitzer Prize this year. Now, now that's not an indicator of how much quality they have. That's an in- indicator of the institutions being taken over. Again, not on purpose. There's not a guy behind the scenes with a top hat organizing this. It's an emergent order But it's so entrenched now that it's very hard to see how to dislodge it. And let me add just one more quick thing. Uh, Somebody who used to go by the name Mencius Moldbug online, uh, real name Curtis Yarvin, has this idea that uh, we can call it the cathedral. And the cathedral is really the constellation of institutions where power actually lies in the United States. And that's things like the universities, media, and so on. It's not organized in the way a typical cathedral is, like from the Pope and the Cardinals down. Although there are analogs, I suppose, with professors and journalists. They do have authority and positions of power. But it's really no one person doing this or even one set of institutions. It's a whole conglomeration of them. And I think the worst part of it is it gives us the illusion of choice. If I go from CNN to MSNBC or from MSNBC to ABC, which is not the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, but the American Broadcasting Corporation, I think, well, hey, look, all three of them are saying the same thing. So what's the chance that they're wrong? That's actually almost worse than state-funded propaganda. If you're a smart person in China or North Korea, you know what the government's saying is bullshit. It's obvious. <laughs> you tune in you know, to other sources and you can just call it. But when the most powerful institutions in the world all agree tacitly to suppress a story like the Hunter Biden emails or to promote a story like the Black Lives Matter movement, even when statistically it's based on lies. Well, what's the average person to think? You know, what are, It makes the person who disagrees with them look like they're insane. It makes the person who disagrees look like, well, you are engaging in conspiracy theorizing. And it's like, no. <laughs> No, we're we're not. You know, we're just giving arguments. We're giving evidence.
0: And everything seems to boil down to language now. It's this idea that people can be controlled with these broad and simplistic three word ideas like "love is love" and "save the planet" and "Black Lives Matter." It's really become quite Orwellian.
1: Yeah, that's right. I remember when I first read 1984. I, I guess I was in university, and I've read it five, six times now. I actually thought philosophically, this is quite implausible. The idea that you can constrain people's thoughts by altering their language. I actually thought that was an overreach on Orwell's part. Maybe I still do to some extent, but even if he's wrong, it's clear that even if our language doesn't strictly determine our thoughts, it definitely constrains our thoughts. And like you said, who's going to deny that Black Lives Matter or (laughs) that, or wait, I believe in in science, the party of science. We should follow the science. Well, it turns out, you know, morally speaking, science doesn't tell you what to do. It just tells you what is the case. So so we, and, and by the way, scientists don't agree with each other. The whole point of something being science rather than pseudoscience or religion is it's not that religion is necessarily false or whatever, but But the the hallmark of science precisely is disagreement, not agreement. It's never been agreement. The whole reason that Einstein was so famous is he said Newton was wrong. Newton isn't a little Mm. bit right. He's literally completely wrong. Darwin said the same thing for William Paley. It's not that he's kind of right. It's that his whole worldview was incorrect. And, you know, that's how science works. There has to be dissenters. This idea that, okay uh we're going to follow the science you know whether it's on corona or anything else it's like that's not how this works we do want to get a consensus sure go with the best available evidence that doesn't then dictate what we should do that that's crazy
0: do you think that this worship of science is part of this emerging order
1: well I, I don't know i actually think that's almost the opposite of the truth i think that it's not that we have too much faith in science it's two things first most ordinary people don't know how science works As I said, it's precisely by disagreement, not agreement. That's the point of science. And secondly, there there are these platitudes, as you said, uh, you know, who disagrees with the idea that we should follow the science or that love is love and all forms of love are equal, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, uh, some of the other things that you had said, right? Uh, Black lives matter. So I think what's going on is first a misunderstanding of how science works. And then secondly, uh, this idea that if one party says they're for science, that means the other party's against it. The reality is nobody's against science. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I know that even a lot of religious people agree that, for example, you know, evolution by natural selection occurred, or you know, the Earth isn't at the center of, of the universe, even though maybe the church said that a thousand years ago. So who doesn't follow the science? I think you know, there's some people, but Nearly everyone agrees we should do that. It's just a platitude.
0: And that platitude uh, has been extended to, and this has been objectively discredited, 97% of scientists believe that, insert latest doom prediction, right?
1: That's right. And and part of the problem here is, you know, whenever there is true consensus on something that they disagree with, for example, nearly all intelligence researchers in psychology think that intelligence is about 80% heritable by adulthood when you say that in public and, and that really is a true consensus people will absolutely lose it well what is intelligence how IQ tests just tell the ability to take IQ tests right they just come up with all of these flailing answers and you say, I, I thought you believed in science i thought you know i thought <laughs> you were the party of science or when scientists say look it turns out men and women are pretty similar actually and and in terms of intelligence they're they're almost identical but you know women do have slight advantages in certain areas their verbal IQ is higher for sure they're better at reading comprehension and men tend to be slightly better at spatial reasoning and so on right um and there's a lot of overlap but that would predict that women are more likely to choose certain jobs and men others they'll absolutely lose it you're part of the patriarchy right you're a misogynist? Or what's to say that, you know, uh, boys and girls didn't just absorb this from their parents? And it's like, well, nothing's to say that. Sure, that's a hypothesis, but it turns out that's been firmly rejected by most scientists. So it turns out there there really are these these sex-based differences. The Y chromosome does things not only in cats or in kangaroos, it turns out it does stuff in people too.
0: Yeah, and we've reached a point now where that x and y dichotomy of male and female is being challenged and this is something that has had its foundations in science for our entire existence and i don't want to get too deep into this because it's a sensitive issue for a lot of people but we are looking at again using science against reason And all we need to say is this side of the argument is correct or my argument is correct because I believe in science and you don't. And we're able to say that there are many, many genders.
1: Yeah, that's good. So really there's two separate points there. On the one hand, just cloaking something in science, uh, whether or not the science is, is settled in that area you know, often is supposed to help you win an argument, and you know, not clear the scientific consensus is right in a particular area. But secondly, yeah, I mean, it's 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 often used, and we 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 call this the replication problem in in the social sciences, in academia. You know, it's often used. One study will be cited, but it turns out that study was never replicated later on, and there's a bunch of counter evidence that emerges to it. Well, people will still cite that initial study to justify whatever their foregone conclusion is. So they're in many ways when they say, well we're the party of science or we follow the science, we're for science, it's like, well, often what's going on there is they're using one scientific finding to justify whatever their preconception was. And I mean one more point on this, which is really important. You know, in certain politically contentious areas, science isn't be trusted. So I trust chemists and I trust, you know, physicians. Sure, they get the answer wrong sometimes, but how likely are you to trust gender research in the year 2020, right? Or intelligence research in some cases, right? Because when you look at the whole West, Europe, the United States, Australia, the science itself has become so politicized that, you know, journals like Nature and Science and these, these big journals, journals or the funding agencies which are usually the governments and some private agencies what's the likelihood that they'll fund a study and then publish one that finds the opposite of what they want to believe or what most people in the media believe And the answer is very unlikely right Um, it's very unlikely to be done because the researcher fears that his career will be threatened or his future income will be threatened and it's very likely to be funded to begin with so that's A real problem with science that bears on politically contentious topics can easily be abused and and misused.
0: Do you think that there's any truth to the argument that's coming from the right at the moment that what we've been seeing from the left in terms of its political and cultural ideology is of a Marxist and communist nature?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a great great point. Um, Look, all sides want to have simple slogans and simple labels to attach to the other side. And that's just more reflection of a universal aspect of human nature than anything. So is this Marxist? In many cases, the answer is no. Um, And even if Marx in some way, Marx the thinker, um, had something to do with some of these ideas, it's not clear what the line is between him writing in the 1840s and what journalists believe today. Most have not read him. Mm. And to the extent they have, I must just haven't read him. To be honest, he's difficult to read. So I, I t- completely agree with you, and this can happen on all sides, and it does happen. um It's hard to have enough time for a, a normal person to go to work, raise a family, and then dig deep into what's actually happening behind the scenes. I will go back, though, and say one more quick thing about journalism. Again, it's not a conspiracy, it's an emergent order. And what happens is when universities and even high schools in America, all lean in the same direction. And their political tilt has changed radically in just the last 20 years. Well, if you need a credential to become a teacher or to become a journalist, not only do you have to go through those schools that are highly biased, so it's a kind of filter process. If you start out as a free thinker or a conservative or a libertarian or whatever, you might not make it through to begin with, or you might choose another career. But similarly, Even if you do make it through, what's the chances that you'll thrive and you'll be invited to the right parties where you get the right information, where you get leaks from the right people? And the answer is it's very difficult. And so the problem really is the mainstream is all on one side of an issue. And the answer isn't to say, let's do it with the other side, let's crush that one side so that the other side wins. It's that we need true diversity and we need to have these social media giants. the the search engines of the world, the Google, which owns almost all search in the world, we need to break these up. We need to make sure that they are regulated minimally in such a way that they can't artificially promote certain content that they agree with and demote other content. It's a true threat in the way that book burning is a threat. It's very difficult to arrive at the truth if you only have one set of ideas, and many of these tech companies are trying to ensure that you have one set of ideas.
0: What do you think that the implications of burying this Hunter Biden story is going to have moving forward now uh, until inauguration?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So um, politicians, as you know, they like to heat up the rhetoric, and every every election, i've been through they always say this is the most important election of our lifetimes and i always roll my eyes you know (laughs) but in some ways that that might be true and 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 i say that in the sense that even if you live in zimbabwe or australia or sweden america's election in 2020 will affect you in a deep way for many years to come and the reason for that is trump is the only politician who has stood up to the tech companies and is in a position to actually do something about it. Now, how will this story affect the election? I don't know. It's pretty clear that it's intended to affect it in Biden's direction. I don't see that how that's going to be avoided. It will siphon off bo- votes to Biden. Will Biden win? It looks that way, but maybe not. Maybe Trump will have a resurgence. Um, now, going forward, if Trump wins, I think that he's going to get very serious with uh, cracking down on Google and not punishing the tech companies, but making sure that they stop their censorious sort of approach to these things. So, regardless though, I will say one thing that is a sign of hope is that uh, Donald Trump actually nominated a new FCC chairman um, a few weeks ago named Nathan Symington, and he may be approved regardless of the result of the election. If he's approved, He's threatened to revoke Section 230 of the FCC Communications Act. And that is the thing that gives Google, Facebook, all these companies uh, immunity from lawsuits. Uh, It gives them special protections. And in many ways, what's happening is these companies are enjoying government-sponsored protection. Um, And what Trump has threatened to do, and even if Trump loses, what may end up happening with his nominee – for the federal communications chair, that person may end up uh, revoking their immunity from lawsuits. We'll see if that happens. If Biden wins or if Symington doesn't get uh, um, confirmed by the Senate, then I fear a very dark winter. And, and I mean that for a long, long time because the tech companies will have seen what we did worked. We got our guy elected, we got our people in charge, and now they control not just the American government, but they'll see that were the reasons they got elected. Google was the biggest campaign contributor this time around, and they already are on the side of one party rather than the other. They'll see that everything they did worked, and they will double down on it.
0: Who do you think subservient to who here?
1: Well, do you mean the tech companies versus the government? Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of um, symbiotic relationship. Um Both in a good and bad way, right? I mean, they scratch each other's backs. Um, But yeah, I would say that they have, in many ways, far more power than the US government has. And the reason I say that is not because they have tanks and guns. The government could crush them immediately, but they don't want to. There's no reason for them to. And Google, Facebook, all of these companies based in 10 square miles of California, they control the thoughts of people around the world. If you're in Sweden, as as I was a couple years ago, and you want to look up crime statistics or or, uh, welfare recipiency rates and things like this, or what are the effects of of mass migration and that sort of thing, Um, well, when you do that search, Google is controlling what information you get as a Swede, and that will directly affect your elections, And, and that's their point.
0: Do you have an opinion on where China comes into this?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, Google is teaming up with China, and they're teaming up to censor the information for China that the government wants. Um, you know, so that that's awful. <laughs> um, they also have been reluctant to criticize China, as you probably know. Many organizations in the United States are doing China's bidding, so Hollywood is, uh, partly just because that's where the majority of people that watch Hollywood movies. There are just more Chinese people than there are Americans or Australians. The NBA is doing the same thing. They won't criticize the concentration camps in China for for the Uyghur population, but they will criticize, for example, the the very un, extraordinarily rare case where a cop uh, shoots a black person, right? So they will go, they will absolutely lose it, you know, when there's a case like that in the United States. But a million Muslims in concentration camps, eh? We're not going to criticize them
0: does make you wonder a bit if the Chinese Communist Party is the author of these narratives, right?
1: Well, it is a good question. And uh, You know, while I don't think that there is a secret Kabul, you know, uh, in the West doing this, there are people in positions of power, they do meet, but I don't think it's exactly a traditional Kabul. I would say that the best case for something like that would be China, because it is clear that politicians do take very seriously what the Chinese want, and these these social media companies certainly do. And tying this all together, I mean, when you think about what the content of the Hunter Biden emails were, the really scary part, there's two scary parts. One is the cover-up, which is always worse than the crime, the deliberate suppression of the story by mainstream journalists and, and the tech companies. But think about what was in there. Part of it is run-of-the-mill corruption, where Biden's son is taking money from an energy company in Ukraine. He doesn't speak Ukrainian. He doesn't know anything about energy. He's literally smoking crack while he's getting paid $100,000 a month. Okay, that's run-of-the-mill corruption. We almost expect that in some countries. But the bigger story is that he was getting paid a lot of money and seeking money. And the Chinese government, according to those emails, which the Bidens have not disputed, They have not said those emails aren't real. And they've been asked, are these emails real? They don't say it. They deflect. Well, part of the content of those emails is that China, the Chinese communist government, was trying to gain access through Hunter Biden to the White House. And it's very clear from an ex-naval officer named Olinsky, who was initially involved in this and pulled out, he just gave an interview last week saying the Chinese communist government was not interested in profiting weren't interested in making money, you know, a few million dollars from Hunter Biden, they wanted access to the White House. The amazing thing is about this story, as I was saying, is that not only is the Chinese government, according to these emails that haven't been disputed, the Chinese government trying to gain access to the White House, not money, but real, you know, access to information. Um, You know, in the process here, what we have is a lifelong Democrat, a naval officer who was involved initially with this, with this scheme, he pulled out and he blew the whistle on it. These, these so-called journalists have refused to interview this person. Remember, this person has been testifying to the FBI. He was on Tucker Carlson's show, which is Fox News, of course. Um, He's an extremely credible witness, a lifelong Democrat who actually gave money to Democrats. He is not a Republican operative, let alone a Russian asset. This person is the one who came forward talking about the Chinese trying to buy access to the White House, and journalists aren't even asking him questions.
0: You'd have to think that sooner or later there is going to be enough rigorous journalism performed that these dots can not only be connected, but they can be substantiated. And then we're potentially looking at an emerging order that's involving an adversary. Yep. So, yeah. In in
1: the case of the Chinese Communist Party in particular.
0: Yes, that's what I'm talking about.
1: To follow up on, on that last point that you made, I actually think there's a decent chance that um, if Biden wins, he'll be impeached and maybe removed from office. I mean, he may not have long anyway. I mean, his cognitive decline is is obvious for all to see. Um, it was actually an issue that Democrats themselves were raising a year ago during the primaries. But, you know, apart from cognitive decline or maybe an early demise, there's a real chance that he's going to be indicted on charges. I mean, you know, Hunter Biden and others are being interviewed by the FBI this is pretty serious stuff. So it's likely that the, the, the mainstream media, they don't really care because they know that Biden is essentially a puppet for Kamala Harris anyway. Not a puppet in the sense of, again, not a conspiracy. Like It's not like he doesn't have a mind of his own, but most people think he is entering some cognitive decline, probably doesn't have a long time to live. And we know where the energy in the Democratic Party is. It's not with the Joe Bidens. And frankly, it's not even with Kamala Harris. It's more with the radical left wing enthusiasts. And Harris is a power seeker. She proved that um, when she came to power in, in the state of California, my home state. You know, it started with an extramarital affair where she used essentially uh, the mayor of a very powerful town to gain access to political power. She's done it her whole life. And and if Biden goes and is indicted on charges eventually, she'll assume power and you can rest assured she's going to uh, do what she can to stay in power and to appease the people that helped her. And that includes the tech giants and the journalists.
0: I know that you aren't of a theological persuasion, Jonathan, but I think that God chooses flawed vessels to carry out his work and I believe Trump is the only person right now that's standing in the way of that dark winter.
1: I couldn't Uh, agree more.
0: Because the thing that I think has become clear with Trump is that he wants people to get along. He wants people to do well. And he can start to turn around this psychological stronghold the mainstream media has had on people for so long now. And we can restore some semblance of truth.
1: Yeah, I, I suppose the you know, the only good side that could come from all of this if Trump loses is maybe maybe people will eventually see journalism for what it's become. And you know, I don't I think journalism is very important, but journalism in the United States, mainstream journalism, has become a joke. And I think we either need to improve journalism or we need to discredit it, because right now we're in an unstable equilibrium. So I yeah, am I very agree. much hoping I'm very much hoping that Trump wins, um, if nothing else, for that. You know, I didn't even vote for him in 2016, but I think that he is a great hope for freeing up ideas again, for being able to just express what you believe, whether it be on social media or encumbered by these, these young tyrants behind the scenes trying to control your thoughts.
0: That's right. And the thing is that we weren't ready for social media. Social media hit us like a tidal wave. And in many respects, we're still bobbing around in the froth, trying to work out what the hell's going on. And I don't think that social media is necessarily a good thing for us.
1: Agree. I would say it's a, it's a net bad right now. I would have said even five years ago, okay, there's some jerks on social media, but it's a net good. I would say it's very clear, it's on a very bad force. And it's like when you, I'm sure you get the same feeling as I do. You know, when you walk around just the streets of a normal place, there's very little animosity. I mean, people say hello, they're nice to each other. But the second you get on social media, it's like those same people behind some walls will just go at it and destroy each other. It's, it's very destructive of, of a civic life, a healthy society.
0: Very destructive. And I think what's happened is, at least what I've seen, is that there was a very strong dichotomy between the online world and the offline world. And now those two worlds have bled into each other and they're no longer mutually exclusive. And this has really happened through identity politics and these big ideas of what we all think is good and bad. And the two worlds are no longer separate. And this is a problem
1: yeah and let me just sort of echo that i mean so i'm not a religious person i never have been but uh, i've never been more keenly aware than i am now that as people lose their religion and it's really accelerated in the united states i think we were much slower than england or australia we were a very religious country until about 20 years ago but as secularism has risen um, people have looked, it seems to me, for a substitute for a kind of an all-encompassing worldview, a kind of religious worldview. They want to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and they turn to politics for that. And that's exactly what politics is not for, or at least can't be for in a free society that encourages mutual respect and that sort of thing. So, you know, <laughs> even though I'm a secular, you know, pro-choice, pro-gay marriage kind of person. I'm much more aligned with right-wing Christians these days um, than I am with, you know, secularists. They often are the ones that are gravitating toward these bizarre ideas and these extreme ideas um, that you see on social media and, and in journalism and so on.
0: Yes, and it really does put into context the notion that, and you mentioned this earlier at the beginning of our conversation, the notion that human beings in Some capacity rely on and require religion, and when you remove that, you're left with the question of who is God, what is God, the state.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, one of my favorite economists, um, you know, he won the Nobel Prize in 1986. He just died about 10 years ago. James Buchanan, and you know, he's a country boy from rural rural Tennessee, you know, and then ended up winning the Nobel Prize great man and and his his last article before he died was called afraid to be free question mark and it was about how people have elevated you know secularists in particular the state to a kind of godlike father figure that gives them a sense of meaning it gives them the rules that they crave like a father figure would gives them something to worship now i mean that metaphor only goes so far but i'll tell you i mean it's probably no coincidence That the parties that represent atheists and secularists are the ones that want bigger government, not smaller government. They're the ones that want to impose their will and a universal set of laws on everyone, including those who disagree. So it's like I'm pro-choice, but I I think if people in Alabama want to be pro-life and restrict abortion, I think that's the cost of liberty. That's their right. They can do that. But that would be considered outrageous to a lot of people. Um, who are atheists, they think like, no, everyone has to believe this, right? I don't care if they're Christian, they're bigots, you know? And it's like, that's that's kind of how they think. It's like, well, the state is going to enforce this thing that I've invented um, basically in place of God, in place of a Bible or a set of instructions that is, is time immemorial. They want to create those from, from scratch. And those people who claim to love diversity so, so much, they actually kind of hate it. I mean, they don't like diversity of thought when it comes to politics, right? The the people who are against me, they're bigots. It's a kind of cultish worldview, to be, to be frank.
0: And also not to just replace the kind of social mechanisms that the state can prop up and fund, like welfare, right? But also the idea that the state is now replacing the family.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's even an attack on the family itself, so there. You know, the state performs the function of husband in the case of the United States. You may know about 70 or or, or higher percentage of black children are born out of wedlock. And that's because the state says, look, if you're married, uh, then that's up to the father to take care of or whatever. But if you don't get married at all, then the state will come in and supply uh, income, free education, health care, all these things. And so what happens is a lot of these pe- people, the poorest people... They don't ever get married. The state is dad, quite literally, mm-hmm. and it gives you free housing and so on. So, yeah, it's um, it's pernicious in a lot of ways. And I mean, moreover, you know, you you probably get this in Australia, too. A lot of these people who are worried about climate change, they end up as an antinatalist. So they say, well, if you care about climate change or the environment, what you need to do is not have any children. And it's like, well, actually, like we have negative population growth growth in the west. It's Africa that's having all the children. Like by far. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. you know, what, what are you saying here? Like and so they're turning not only to the state as a kind of parent or a proxy parent. They're also turning to the state and it's it's a kind of anti-family in a way. It, it's discouraging the kinds of policies that a healthy society would have, which is pronatalism, not anti-natalism, right? So it's a kind of sick substitute family
0: this podcast was brought to you by Search Tempo. If you want your business to get found on Google, visit SearchTempo.com. That's S E A R C H T E M P O.com. Inside Out with Nick Holt. I love you.